we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so this week we're looking at chapter 9, which is the Holy Spirit. And uh, it is funny that someone pointed out, I probably shouldn't say this on the recording, but someone pointed out that uh, as we're looking at the different doctrines through this uh, foundations lesson, uh, you know, you have 12 lessons and you don't have a lesson on like theology proper or God, you know, God the Father or you don't have a lesson on Jesus Christ but you have a lesson on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little unbalanced as far as why there's a lesson on the Holy Spirit versus why there are uh, no lessons on the other stuff. So we'll try to push through and uh, understand why they highlighted the Holy Spirit in this lesson and what we can learn from it. Um. One of the things that I was thinking about as we were, as I was preparing the lesson is, I mean, how do you, for you guys, how do you typically, I mean, because a, a lot of theology books, various short sections devoted to the Holy Spirit. So if you go into the, like you're looking at, you know, God the Father, the attributes of God, they're really long. It's a long, big section because it's important. Or Jesus Christ, obviously, it's a big section in, in a theology book. Holy Spirit, some theology books don't even include a section on the Holy Spirit. Others, it's a small section. So, when you guys think about the Holy Spirit, like, what is it that you think about? Like, do you have a clear understanding of what the whole, you know, like the role the Holy Spirit plays? Is it kind of like... It's kind of, it's kind of like... Um our conscience uh, being being controlled by by Jesus in the form of the Spirit, you know. Okay. So it's how Jesus lives within us, right? You know? So God, how we manifest, kind of in a manifest Himself within our within our soul, and helps us to, yeah. to make decisions, and, right? You know. Yeah, when Jesus died, the Spirit was like left with us too. Right. That's another thing. Yep. So that's good. You actually, you guys are thinking actually pretty well about it because sometimes you get when you talk about the Holy Spirit, people are kind of fuzzy on exactly what the Holy Spirit does, or you know, is it a force? Is it you know this kind of warm fuzzy feeling thing that you don't really can identify? You know, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? Um, you know, even the King James language using the Holy Ghost, talking about the Holy Ghost sometimes is confusing. So it sounds like you guys are uh, thinking along the bright lines. So let's uh, start at the top of 100. It says, Perhaps no biblical doctrine is as misunderstood and misapplied as pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Activities ranging from being knocked unconscious to having uncontrollable fits of so-called holy laughter are attributed to the Holy Spirit. However, Scripture's teaching regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is very clear. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever been to a church that does that kind of stuff, but it's it's pretty weird. Running up the aisles. Yeah, but I, they, yeah. I've seen that. I remember one time I was at a church like that. It really it was really weird. Seeing people sprinting up and down the aisles. Right. What is this person Can we doing? say a denomination that does that? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I, as I'm teaching this material, my, my grandmother who passed away, she... When she was alive, she went to a vineyard, vineyard church, which is in that, and that's they were doing all kinds of that stuff. So, uh, a lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit in, in that uh, church. So. 
uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. So why do we want to... It's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person depicted as a person in Scripture. So Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, as it says in Matthew 28. So how does Ephesians 4.30 prove that he is a person and not merely some force? So Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So how does that, how do you think that um, proves or um, points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, mainly it's because if the fact that if the it's an actual person or the traits of a person, because um, if it can be grieved, he has emotions, uh, and it's not so. That there's it, it's depicting the Holy Spirit as having you know possessing what a person has emotions. It can be grieved, the Holy Spirit, uh, the traits that make him co- a distinct person. Matthew three sixteen and seventeen prove that the Holy Spirit, though equal with God the Father and God the Son, is also distinct and separate from the Father and Christ. So Matthew three sixteen and 17 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So, how that would be is that you actually have the all three persons of the Trinity there uh, present at the same time. You have um, Jesus Christ, the person, you know, Jesus Christ there being baptized. The Spirit of God is actually descending onto him. And then you have the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So you have these three dis- distinct uh, persons interacting with each other in this one scene of Matthew 3.16. So the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the silent member of the Trinity. That is not to say that he is any less God than the Father and the Son. Rather, it means that he is not prominent. He does not gather attention to himself. So who does the Spirit glorify? According to John 16.13, it says that uh, Jesus there is speaking and John says that he glorifies me. So the Spirit... Uh, glorifies the Son. There are many movements today that focus on the Holy Spirit to the point of distraction. They glorify Him rather than Christ, as we were just talking about. Such movements do not originate with God's Spirit. On the other hand, many Bible believers have overreacted to this error by failing to speak of the Holy Spirit at all. It seems that some would try to convert the Trinity into a duet both the extremes of overemphasis and underemphasis are dangerous. So we want to understand a balanced understanding of the Holy Spirit, uh, particularly for our purposes in the class, because it how it applies to godly living. There, that last point. So, looking at the works of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> the works of, of the Spirit fall into three main categories: works of creation, works to the unsaved, and works within the saved. Though most of our time will be spent on the Spirit's ministry and believers, we will briefly address his other works as well. The Holy Spirit first appears in Genesis 1, verse 2. What did God the Father, Son, and Spirit accomplish 
in that first chapter of Scripture. So there, all three members of the Trinity are, are working out the creation there. So they're working out um, the works of creation in that opening chapter. The Holy Spirit carries out two works among believers. Uh, first, um, the first thing, work that the Holy Spirit carries out among believers is uh, highlighted in Second Thessalonians two seven. Uh, it probably says it probably refers to the Holy Spirit as the one who holds it back, and who will continue to do so until the rapture of the church, when Christ returns to take Christians from earth to be with Him in heaven. So there, it's talking about the restraining of the effects of sin. So holding it back, the one who holds back refers to the restraining of the full effects of sin. So we live in a depraved, uh, the depravity of human humanity, uh, and what the Holy Spirit does there, what that first point is, holding back uh, the effects of, of that depravity, holding back the full effects of sin. So the second ministry, chapter 101, of the Spirit to the unsaved, was promised directly by Christ in John 16, 8. Before he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, of what does the Holy Spirit prove the world and be prove the world in that's not right. Uh, to be wrong about. It says that they were wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So the world the Holy Spirit will prove the world that they were wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Through his ministry of conviction, then, the Holy Spirit draws unsaved people to salvation. So that's the main point of this number two, is that by convicting people that they are wrong about sin and righteousness and wrong about judgment, it works to draw unsaved people to salvation. Yet his work is just beginning, for most of the Holy Spirit's work is done in the lives of those who have trusted Christ as Savior. So in other words, that point to the world is convicted of the principles of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they might be saved. So they're convicted about that. And he's talking about proof. So regenerating of the Holy Spirit. So we moved from unbelievers, now we're talking about believers, the work of the Holy Spirit to believers. The first ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer occurs at the moment the unsaved man becomes saved. John 3, 3 through 6, describes the need of all people to be born of the Spirit. The new birth is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus describe the new birth in John 3, 3? So he says, a person must be born again. Other translations you can read, that a person must be born from above. In other words, they must have a spiritual birth. And then that little box, the principle of regeneration. The regeneration of the Spirit is experienced permanently, key word there, by every believer at the moment of salvation. Every believer experiences the regeneration. You were born once physically. If you have trusted in Christ, you have also been born spiritually. So the Holy Spirit brought spiritual life where there was spiritual death. So that was our status status before our being reborn, is that we were spiritually dead. So, key point, the, the Holy Spirit then is important for the role that it plays with regeneration. 
So the baptizing of the Holy Spirit. The baptizing, baptism of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the most misunderstood of the Spirit's ministries. In order to get a good understanding of it, consider first who has received the baptize, baptism of the Spirit. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, how many of them had received the baptism of the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So all believers, all the Corinthians, and Paul is including himself in there. All the believers had received the baptism of the Spirit. So notice that all Christians have been, have been baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Even Christians who are worldly, 1 Corinthians 3.1. So we're talking about uh, worldly Christians, those who are characterized by the unsaved or unregenerate lifestyle. Uh, the, and it talks a little bit about baptized there. The English word baptized is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, to, or in other words, to immerse. Remember, water baptism is only an outward symbol of spirit baptism. And Ken usually, you know, Ken touches on that every time we do our baptism. You must not confuse the two. The Spirit, the Bible, excuse me, the Bible teaches that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit immersed or baptized you into the body of Christ. Because of spirit, spiritual baptism, you are now in Christ and He is in you. The two of you have been inseparably linked. Galatians 3, 27, 20 through 8 makes the application that since you have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, you are no longer merely a Jew or Gentile, man or woman. First and foremost, you are a Christian. There is no room for division or sectarianism in the body of Christ. So that's an appropriate verse there is what we were just talking about with this politics. So, you know, we want to divide ourselves. There's a tendency, I think, in all of us to want to kind of break up into our tribes. We want to uh, define ourselves in a way that's distinct from other people, whether it's po- politics, you know, gender, wherever you f- fall. I mean, do you, f- do you like Michigan or Michigan State? So you want to always kind of make these artificial divisions. But as Galatians 3 talks about, we have to ma- remember that uh, we're all one or have this uh, unity that is important to remember that should be... Uh, uh, supersede any of those divisions that we want to have. Although some churches teach that you must seek the baptism of the Spirit subsequent to salvation, Scripture teaches that you receive. So it's not about seeking. You actually receive spiritual baptism when you are saved. You were never commanded to seek it because it is, as a Christian, you already have it. So one of the other verses uh, that talks about this, Acts 2, Peter, this is Acts 2, Peter is speaking to the people there. They just received this question, brothers, what shall we do? And this is now Peter had just stood up, he preached his sermon, this crowd of people, and they reply to him, what shall we do? And Peter replies in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's telling them, 
once they're saved, once you become a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. So again, that point that we don't have to seek the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Holy Spirit is the Spirit baptism is uh, you receive it automatically. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, page one hundred two. Another ministry of the Spirit that begins at salvation is the indwelling of the Spirit. Its meaning is simple. He dwells in you. God is omnipresent, but He lives within His people in a unique sense. So that's something we need to always remember. So God, by definition, is in every place. There's no place, sometimes we, when we think about even hell, we think, you know, this is somehow separation from God. But if God is omnipresent, then He has to, by definition, be in every place, always. There's, uh, but there's a, a, some kind of special sense that the Holy Spirit lives within his pe- God's people. There's a unique relationship there. In the Old Testament, God has two unique dwelling places. He lived in the tabernacle from the time of Moses to the time of Solomon, uh, David's son. He then began living in the temple under the, from the period of Solomon forward. Whereas the tabernacle was a temporary place, which was a tent, the temple was more permanent. For God to dwell in any specific location was special. In order to prove to his people that he was indeed in their midst, God performed special signs, both at the entrance into the tabernacle and his entrance into the temple. So these signs were described in Exodus 40 as a cloud of fire which covered the tabernacle and in 1 Kings 8 as a cloud which filled the temple. Similarly, on the day of Pentecost, that is the beginning of the church, at this feast there in Jerusalem, God began dwelling in his people. He again demonstrated his presence with signs in Acts 2, two of which are very similar to the ones we just mentioned. It is the cloud, uh, the cloud and the fire. And uh, in Acts 2, they're described as a sound like a blowing wind or a great storm, sound like a blowing wind and the tongues of fire that rest on the believers. So those two things, the sound, the blowing wind, that sound of a blowing wind and the tongues of fire, the, representing the presence of God there amongst his people. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would typically enter or come upon leaders to enable them to carry out important ministries. Uh, what particular positions were empowered by the Spirit in the following passages? So Judges 6 uh, particularly verse uh, 34. So Judges 6.34. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came, came on Gideon, and he blew a trump, trumpet, summoning the ab Abyssalites to follow him. So Gideon, one of the judges there for Israel, the Spirit of God uh, comes upon him to empower him for ministry. So the judges there were uh, empowered by the Spirit. First Samuel sixteen. First Samuel sixteen fourteen. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord depend, uh, tormented him. 
And just, excuse me, I should have started one verse. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So you see the transition there for leadership. First Samuel 16 talks about the empowerment of God, uh, the Spirit for leadership of God's community. It left Saul and went to David. So Saul's ability to lead, 1 Samuel 16, 14, Saul's ability to lead was tied directly to the Spirit's empowerment, equipping, and that's why it's important there for David. David receives it so that he can lead God's people. 1 Chronicles 12 says, Then the Spirit came on Amasai, chief of the thirty, those are the 30 people who helped David. So the mighty men of Israel. Ezekiel 2.2. There we see that the Spirit's empowerment was important for the prophets. So all the prophets of Israel. So to what kind of people did God promise His Spirit in Joel 2.28-29? So this is an important verse. And afterward... Reading from Joel 2.28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So on all of God's people, all of God's servants, he will pour out his Holy Spirit. Joel's prophecy is analogous to the coming of the Spirit in the New Testament in Acts 2. God now dwells in all of his people, regardless of age, position, or race. God does not live in a building. He lives in you. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, so as we already discussed, the indwelling. What does God call all Christ, call the Christians living in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.16? That they are God's temple. And he says that God's spirit dwells in your midst. So the people of God are God's temple. We talked about this while we introduced there this topic of the temple initially. So God dwells there in the Old Testament in the temple. And we are called God's temple because we're trying to uh, highlight the fact that God dwells with his people in them. So the significance of being called the temple of God is that we are God's dwelling place. God dwells with, dwells with us in a special way. So some people teach that the Holy Spirit lives only in those who are actively obeying Christ and that he will leave those who sin. Yet how did, and that should be Paul, not, it should be in Paul. So it says, how did Christ, but that actually should be Paul. There. So, yeah, how did Paul refer to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 3.1? So Paul is addressing them there. He calls them the people who live by the Spirit. He calls the Corinthians the people who live by the Spirit. People who are characterized by being controlled by the Spirit. And that's really a a succinct definition of all believers. That we should be people marked by uh, those, marked by the spiritual life. There, where it says brass, tacks, and the little box. Remember this important truth. Doctrine is always practical. 
the fact that God's Spirit dwells in you should greatly affect your daily living. So that's a key point there. God's Spirit dwelling in you should affect your daily living. Just as you wouldn't defile a church building or the Old Testament temple, you must not defile your body. God's new temple, that's us. That means you need to take care of yourself physically. Further, you need to avoid sexual sins that cause God's temple to be impure. Glorify God with your body. So we really want to understand or think about how does uh, how does the God's Spirit dwelling within us? How does that affect our daily living? What does that mean for you know the choices we make the, the, as we go about our day? The implication here is very important. God lives in all Christians, even those who are disobeying Him. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is permanent and is not dependent on godly living, although it motivates godly living. As a Christian, you were neither you neither seek nor endeavor to keep the Spirit's presence. If you do not have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. Romans eight nine. Because all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians one twenty two uses the metaphor or symbol of a seal to say that all believers have been sealed with the Spirit. All believers are indwelt by the Spirit at the moment of salvation, and the Spirit becomes a seal on the believer. Uh, to seal something in the ancient world, uh, up until relatively recently, was to make an impression in wax with an insignia, often contained in a ring. A letter would be closed or rolled, have hot wax dripped onto its edge and sealed. The purposes of this seal were several. So I'm sure you guys have probably all seen that in movies or something where they roll it up, drop wax, and then they, they stamp it. First, it showed the authenticity of the letter. How does it show the authenticity? It proved, because they said most of the time that seal was made by a ring that someone wore. So it proved it came from the sender. It proved that the person who wrote claimed to write the letter actually wrote it because of their their personal seal. According to Romans 8.16, how does the Holy Spirit prove that you are a legitimate child of God? It says the Spirit, that is the capital S, the Spirit testifies with our spirit, lowercase s. Second, the seal was used to show ownership of an object. The sealed letter was not to be opened by anyone other than the person for whom it was intended according to 2 Corinthians 1 21-22 it is God who has given this, you the seal of the spirit and has thereby claimed you as his own so finally number 3 the seal would render the object secure uh, according to Ephesians 4.30 how long will you be sealed with the spirit and it says until the day of redemption so it said Paul tells the Ephesians there you are sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. So the day of redemption is, is the time that Christ will return for his people and take them to be with him in heaven. By giving you the Holy Spirit as a seal, Christ has guaranteed that he will indeed claim you for his own when he returns. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, you cannot and will not be lost. So in addition to teaching that you are sealed with the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30 commands you to not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is in you. So uh, Ephesians 4.31, and I'll read it, says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, 
brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. So those are the things that grieve the spirit. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. I guess the sixth there, malice. Notice that although your sin grieves the Holy Spirit and hinders your daily communion with Him, it does not cause Him to depart. He will still be present until the day of redemption. So that's an important thing, especially as new believers or as you're talking. If you have a chance to talk with young Christians, that is not young in age, but young in their faith, you know, you, you want to stress this, that your sin does not make you know, God's presence leave you, uh, despite what they feel. 2 Corinthians one twenty two Ephesians 1, in addition to saying that you have been sealed with the Spirit, uh, this, it calls him a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. When one is making a purchase, what is the purpose of a deposit? So you make a deposit uh, as a hold, you're trying to hold something. So how does Christ give, giving us the Spirit, or His Spirit, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, assure us of our ultimate redemption when He will take us to heaven? Because it, it, it's a way of saying that we'll get the balance of this blessing in the future. So the deposit means that at some point in the future we'll get this, the balance of what God has promised, that blessing that God has promised of being with Him for eternity in the future. So the illuminating of the Holy Spirit. So this is actually a pretty important, even though it's a short section, it's a pretty important one. 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16 teaches that the Holy Holy Spirit of God illumines you. He convinces you to accept the Bible as true and to grasp the significance of His teaching. So those two points. The Holy Spirit convinces us to accept the Bible as true and grasp the significance of his teaching of the the Bible's teaching. So those are the two things that lack a believer because unbelievers can read the Bible and they understand what it says. So if you open up the Bible and give it to an unbeliever, they can read the words on the page. You know, they can basically get the gist of what the words in a sentence mean, but they're not convinced of its truthhood. And that's something that that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of the truth of the scriptures and that it actually has significance for our life. So whereas unsaved people, that is the people people without the Spirit, don't have spiritual understanding, you do if you are a Christian. Your prayer each time you open your Bible or hear a sermon should be the prayer contained in Psalm 119.18, which is, open my eyes, this is Psalm 119.18, it says, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. So a common misconception about the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he will explain the meaning of the Bible to you. So this is something you hear from older saints and younger saints, people who've been Christians their whole life. They don't completely understand or they're mistaken when they speak of this. They pray for spiritual understanding. The meaning of a verse can only be determined by studying it within its context. So 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches that the person without the Spirit will not accept the Bible as true and authoritative. 
And I think that's probably true. If you've ever talked to an unbeliever, talked to unbelieving friends, family, someone you're interacting with, they're just not going to accept the Bible as being true. I mean, you can try to convince them. Uh, you know, we're going through apologetics with the Crossroads group. And one of the things, you know, you, you can keep throwing Bible verses at people, but they're just not going to accept this as, as truth. It may resonate with them, you know, because they're God's word and they had this, uh, they are all made in the image of God. So it may resonate somehow with them, but ultimately it's only that the whole, only the work of the Holy Spirit that helps them, a person to understand it's true. So they won't accept it. Uh, so it's something as we actually um, seek to evangelize or share our faith, we have to remember that. Because the Holy Spirit illumines the mind of every believer, you, that is us, will accept what you what we read as true, and the Spirit will enable us to understand the significance of what we read. That is how the Bible applies to us. So the illuminating of the Spirit there in the principle box is experienced regularly by believers who seek to understand Scripture. So this should affect our prayer life So somehow as we're thinking about how this affects us. The illumination, illuminating principle of the, the doctrine of illumination should affect our prayer life somehow. So when we pray, how do we pray? What are we praying for? There in the box where it says, turn on the light. The word illumine refers to turning on of a light. A light does not create objects. It simply sheds light on what is already there. Similarly, the Holy Spirit does not reveal new information today. He simply helps you understand the significance of what Scripture already says. That's illumination. So it doesn't help us to... The Holy Spirit doesn't give us meaning. It doesn't help us to grasp the meaning of the text. Reading the words on the page, how it interacts with the other, other sentences, other paragraphs, the context of the whole book where the whole Bible helps us to understand what the meaning is. It's that it's true and that it applies to our life. Those are the two points. So at the moment of salvation, there under the gifting of the Holy Spirit, every Christian is given a unique ability for service in the local church. So we're all, somehow, each one of us has a unique ability for service in the local church. These special abilities are specifically listed in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 4. Many of them were miraculous sign gifts that were in use only during the lifetime of the apostles and only in the absence of the New Testament scriptures. Every believer has at least one of the remaining spiritual gifts. They are given at the Holy Spirit's discretion, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, and are to be used in humility, not with arrogance. So 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. So the Spirit distributes the gifts as He determines to each one of us. So the spiritual gifts are not something we should seek after. We shouldn't be asking for a specific gift. Uh, and there's no gift that is superior over the other. So that's another important. So there's we don't want to rate, think of rating this the gifting in a certain way because the Spirit distributes them sovereignly uh, on a sovereign basis 
to each one as he, as he sees fit. So, page 106. The principle, there in the principle box, the gifting of the Spirit is experienced by every believer to some degree at the moment of salvation for the benefit of the body of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 12. To what does Scripture compare the church? So, verse 12 says, we, uh, it compares the church to, the, to a body. So, that Paul's whole, as he's going through this section, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he keeps comparing the church to the body. A, a person's body. So why is this comparison so appropriate, especially when discussing spiritual gifts? It's because each part has a specific, important function. Each part has a role to play. Each part is important for the health of the whole. So according to this passage, which parts of the body are important? All the parts. So Paul is, he is endeavoring throughout the chapter, he's saying some, uh, we want to think of some parts of the body is having less honor than others, but that's not how God looks at it. All of them are important for the function, the healthy function of the whole. So they're under gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 lists several gifts that were revelatory in nature, healing, prophecy, tongues. That is, those gifts were part of God's direct communication to men during the ministries of the apostles and prior to the completion of the New Testament. Hebrews 2 and Mark 16, 20 explain, ex, uh, clearly explain that the purpose of such signs and wonders was to authenticate the message God was giving through the apostles. That is, the miracles are, were an authentication sign for the apostle, apostolic era. Once that message was completed with the last word of the book of Revelation, the gift, gifts were no longer needed, thus they ceased, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. The gifts that are still functioning today. So these are the some of the offices, evangelists, pastor, teachers, um, teaching, exhortation, leadership, service, giving, and mercy. Some of the other things we, we and it didn't include, but I thought it would be helpful to mention here, when we think about uh, the, the Holy Spirit plays an important role in the unity of the church. So that's one of the roles uh, as we're talking about this, you know, this session was on the gifting of the Holy Spirit, but so there was really no good place to work this in. But the Holy Spirit plays an important function in in giving unity to the Spirit uh, to the church. So if we look at uh, second, for instance, Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So the role the Holy Spirit plays in giving fellowship and providing unity, a basis of unity for God's people. There, highlighted by Paul. Uh, Galatians 5, 18-20. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. And if we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, under 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit that it plays in, in the, the fruit of the Spirit in building unity in the body 
And finally, Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So love, which is one of the gifts of the Spirit, helps us to bind us all in unity. So the role the Holy Spirit plays in unity, in building the unity church, but also the role, so here's a second one, the role the Spirit plays as a teacher. So 2 Timothy 3.16, which is probably a verse most of you guys are familiar with, or at least heard, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then 2 Peter 1.21 For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit actually plays a role as a teacher. So helping to uh, give us, as as we talked about earlier, it illumines our minds as students. We, We play the role as students as God illumines our mind to the truthfulness of Scripture, to the how it apply, Scripture applies to our life. The Holy Spirit also plays a double role there. He doesn't just do that, help us as the student. He's actually the teacher. He's the one who led men. These, as Second Peter says, men were bore along, uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit to give those those words that we were reading on the page. So the role of the Holy Spirit plays as teacher for us in the church. Um, so just two extras there, two bonus uh, for class today. The sanctifying, so finally, the sanctifying, and we're going to touch on this more next next week, the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes the process by which Christians are transformed into the image of Christ. This tra- transforming process is sanctification, as it says there, we'll talk about it more. The person, the one who accomplishes your sanctification is God, that is the Holy Spirit. So, the to review, and these are the important points of the, uh, the this chapter. The silence of the Spirit means that He glorifies Christ, not Himself. The regeneration, baptizing, sealing, and indwelling of the Spirit all take place at the moment of salvation. So they immediately at the, the point of salvation, all these things happen. They're permanent things that happen to the believer. At that same moment, He gives every Christian at least one spiritual gift to be used for God's glory and the church's good. The illuminating of the Spirit is his authenticating and applying his word to the believer's life. And the sanctifying of the Spirit is the process by which he changes believers to make them more like Christ, starting at the moment of salvation and continuing until their death. Any questions on that? All right. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer and we'll end the class. Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for this ability to get together and to study this topic, this important topic of the Holy Spirit. We pray that as we go about our lives, as our the rest of our day and our week, that we would be thinking about it, uh, the importance that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives as individuals, as Christians, uh, how this should impact us in our daily lives, our prayer lives, our conversations with people, with others, unbelievers, and Christians. We pray that um, 
you would help us to not grieve the Spirit as we go about our days, that we would uh, glorify you in our thoughts and deeds and actions, in our words and uh, in our conversations with others. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' name.